I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the Middle East. Quite apart from the trauma in Gaza from British-American EU nation armed aerial bombardment, there is trauma all around the world. And one of the greatest trauma specialists in the world is Holocaust survivor Dr. Gabor Mate. He's an award-winning author who, since his last studio interview with us, even found time to interview Prince Harry earlier in the year. But today, he has catastrophe in the Middle East on his mind. His books include When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, in the realm of hungry ghosts, close encounters with addiction, and the myth of normal trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. He joins me again from Vancouver in Canada. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mate, for uh, coming on the show. You, you said recently that everything one says about recent events is going to hurt someone. Why is it so difficult to even talk about trauma amongst Palestinians in the parliaments of NATO countries? Uh, like your country, Canada, let alone uh, other countries in Western Europe? I think there are uh, two major reasons. Um, one of them is the reality that um, Israel, the impetus to found the state of Israel was rooted in such deep trauma of, of Jewish people in, in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, but then of course with the Second World War in Germany as well. and. Uh, the European countries feel a fear, fear of guilt about what happened to Jews in Europe. That's one stream. But the other, and so that there's a fear that by talking about Palestinian trauma, you're somehow um, diminishing or invalidating Jewish trauma. But there's a more major reason, which is that um, the um, English speaking countries, particularly, we are rooted in colonialism. They, they all, you know, whether it's the United States or Canada or, or Australia, um, and of course, um, Holland, Belgium, France, they all participated in the colonial project. What I'm saying is that these countries either were rooted in, founded in colonialism, or had colonial policies themselves. So they're more likely to identify with the colonial mindset than with the mindset of the people being colonialized. Now, it doesn't matter how you see the foundation of Israel as being rooted in Jewish trauma. The reality is that it couldn't have been established without foreign imperial control and the colonization of the land, of a land that was already populated by an indigenous people. So the colonial mindset dominates Western thinking. And so that you have this combination of historical Jewish drama and a colonial project that to the Western minds seems perfectly natural. So from the Western point of view, the emotion would like to identify with the colonizer than with the people being colonized. Even after all the progress that so many people are talking about endlessly on, on television. I mean, you've, you've compared the lies in NATO nation media about what's happening in Gaza to the lies told uh, about Vietnam before um, uh, the great uh, and late Dan Ellsberg, who's been on this show, actually. Why? Why do they lie? Again, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's in the service of imperial policy, so that um, the United States is the biggest empire in the history of the world. It's got, what, 800 military bases internationally. It dominates the world culturally, and uh, less so with China rising, but used to dominate it economically as well. And uh, it's the United States decided a long time ago, just as Britain decided back in 1917 and the 1920s, that it's in the interest of the British Empire to establish a Jewish entity in Palestine. I'm quoting Winston Churchill. 
in the same way the United States decided that it's in its interest to have this unsinkable aircraft carrier called Israel in the Middle East. And the press always serves the interests of the imperial uh, project. So if you look at any number of American wars, uh, Vietnam, based on a pack of complete lies, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, for example, that gave the excuse to the Americans to bomb North Vietnam, never even happened. But all the press reported it as reality. The weapons of mass destruction, which was the excuse to invade Iraq, which a five-year-old child could tell was a complete concoction. Nevertheless, the press enthusiastically trumpeted it. And so for the last 60, 70 years, the, the press has enthusiastically trumpeted all the, all the Israeli talking points and totally ignored the, uh, the, the um, occupation and the oppression and the repeated killings of Palestinians because it suits American imperial policy, which is what the, uh, the press uh, is subservient to. You know what? And then 10 years, 15 years later, they'll do some um, soul searching. Oh my God, we, we made a mistake. Ellsberg was right. You know, Pentagon Papers was right. Vietnam was based on a pack of lies. Oh, they'll do some soul searching. Oh my God, there were, were no weapons of mass destruction. But the next war that comes along, they'll always fall into line. And they're doing that right now as well. And you think this is a conscious lie? I mean, clearly you've been talking to Zionist communities in recent weeks amidst the alleged Gaza genocide. They're not gonna say they know they're lying. And uh, what, Hillary Clinton, she knows she's lying when she talks about beheaded babies and uh, the need to bomb hospitals? I don't know if these people at the top know they're lying or whether they're so bought into the, so boxed into the ideology that they've been serving all their lives so that they're saying untruths, but are they actually lying? Probably sometimes they are, but probably also often they believe what they're saying. Because I think when you consider who rises to the top in this system, nobody who speaks the truth ever rises to the top. So there's a selection process that happens. By the time you get to the level of a Hillary Clinton or a, or a Joe Biden or a Rishi Sunak uh, or a Justin Trudeau, for that matter, they've been through so many processes that they have to prove their loyalty to the system that by the time they race to the top, only the most loyal get there. And so it's hard to tell whether they're lying sometimes or whether they're just sincerely telling uh, untruths. It, you know, I, I, I'd have to talk to them personally. I can't tell you. I suspect they do both. And I mean, in, we know they do both. And in this context, where the peoples of NATO countries of the United States and Western Europe backing to the hilt, uh, the Israeli operations uh, on, on Gaza, the, the weaponry, the billions of dollars of aid and so on, what of the rest of us uh, and, and the people? How do they cope? I mean, of course, we're not, we're just forgetting for a second the trauma of all those survivors in, in Gaza tonight and today. What, how do you suggest people cope with the trauma of those feeling hopeless in NATO countries arming the alleged genocide as they watch it on social media, feeling there is nothing they can do to stop it? Well, of course, the reality is that um, these mass movements that arise in response to these horrors, they have their expressions and a lot of people come together, like hundreds of thousands of people in Britain uh, a few days ago, um, 
but you know, it's, it, it's hard to keep up those kind of movements, you know, and the governments don't care anyway. What I say to people is, number one, do the work, and this is for me as much as for anybody else, do the work, speak your truth, speak it as loudly as you can, connect with other people as much as you can, but don't be attached to the outcome, you know, don't let the outcome defeat you. Know that you've contributed to truth in the world by opposing some atrocity, but don't take it personally, because historically, the good guys always lose. That's just how it is, you know. And and you have to just make accept the fact that you contributed something. You've spoken the truth. You you've helped to shine some light. Lose temporarily. I I hope you mean. Sorry. Well, you lose temporarily. Yeah, but you've contributed to something important in the world in the long term. That's exactly my point. That your contribution has not been uh, in vain. And there's a famous Jewish rabbi who said. 2,000 years ago, um, or a little bit more, that the task is not yours to finish, but neither are you free not to take part in it. And uh, so, so you make your contribution, but don't be attached to the outcome. Okay, then That's what the first point. Well, what about Sorry. the dis disassociation then between the killing of children and those working on the weapons? Uh, you know, Britain's biggest manufacturer is BAE Systems. Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, Boeing in your country, in uh, the United States, and of course the Canadian uh, uh, military and associated companies as part of the military uh, industrial complex is massive in NATO countries. How do you explain the disassociation between the workers who work on the weapons doing the killing, let alone actors, musicians, and so on, told by their agents and studios and publishers, just don't speak out and don't do what you just said about uh, the need to uh, follow your conscience or uh, something like that. In Canada, in Canada, there's been a number of people in the uh, arts world who have lost their jobs because of speaking out. Um, in, in here in Vancouver, where I live, there are um, academics who have spoken out who are now being threatened by their by their employing institutions. There's a real um, look. People who participate in such things, I mean, the arms, arms manufacturers and so on. It's a real dissociation. Um, they, they they they're cut off from their humanity. They, they they couldn't be connected to their sense of humanity and do the job that they do. And I've known lots of people who are able to be very nice to their families and their dogs, but still do terrible things out there in the world, you know? And this is a well-known phenomenon, you know? Uh, so that this dissociation um, between what I do in the world and what I allow myself to feel is, is a very common human trait. And uh, in a lot of societies, it... Uh, it's like that, and it's not only like that in the West, it's like that internationally as well. Um, there's another kind of dissociation. I was talking to a, a young um, Muslim student here at um, University of British Columbia. She says that she's numbing out her body. It's the only way she can survive. You know, so that, oh, I, actually she was worried about it. She says, I'm numbing out. She says, I'm not feeling my feelings. I said, listen, don't worry about it. That's your organism's attempt to, to survive or to endure what's unendurable. Uh, we'll come back to your feelings later. Uh, so that this dissociation, it can serve the function of doing terrible things in the world, but sometimes it's also a response to too much pain in the world. I mean, clearly information the about the Holocaust 
came through slowly at first. It was rumor first about what uh, the Nazis were doing. Um, not, not that, I mean, it's odd because you're in Canada and we saw Trudeau applauding a member of the Nazi SS. So there's some disassociation going on there. But today we can use social media to see what's happening on this industrial scale in real time. Well, in Nazi Germany, the Nazis did everything they could to actually hide what they were doing. So that <clears throat> I actually fully believe that although most Germans saw the anti-Jewish uh, laws and, and practices and, and, and violence of the Nazis, they didn't know about Auschwitz. You know, they didn't know about Treblinka. Um, sometimes they didn't want to know, but they didn't know which doesn't mean that they didn't uh, support the anti-Semitism and the, you know, the Nazi state, but they didn't specifically know about the atrocities. Many people did, of course. Many soldiers saw it and participated in it. They must have talked about it at home. But it wasn't on the mass media. What is particularly horrendous right now, and I think it's a particularly dark time in the world, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, is that we're seeing it happen. We're seeing babies bombed. We see parents digging their limbs of their children out of the rubble. Dr. Gabo Maté, I'll have to stop you there. More from the renowned physician and award-winning author after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with renowned physician and award-winning author Dr. Gabo Maté. So sorry, Dr. Maté, for uh, interrupting you in end of part one. We were talking about the real-time viewing of people, billions around the world, of what's happening in Gaza. I was saying that what makes this a very particularly dark time right now is that we're always seeing, you know, in live action almost, the dismemberment of young children, parents digging their kids out of their rubble. And our politicians are just saying this is okay. And, and the media for the most part, is justifying it. And there's a huge disconnect with what people are watching and what they're being told. And I think that's hard for a lot of people right now. And this is almost unprecedented. Um, it's, it's, it's impossible to compare cruelties and atrocities. And let me just say, for the record, that October the 7th was itself as an atrocity, in my view. Um, but this ongoing daily um, cruelty, unspeakable cruelty that we're witnessing in the face of media support and the political class in most of the Western world is just cheering it on. It's the darkest thing I've ever seen in my whole life and that's saying a lot. It's really saying a lot coming, coming from you, obviously. I mean, uh, you did mention October 7th there, uh, if Israel is indeed an apartheid state, as uh, Israeli uh, NGOs like B'Tselem say, does that justify events like October the 7th? I mean, Nelson Mandela's dead now. I have interviewed him. And, of course, he believed in the use of violence against civilians uh, in the fight against apartheid South Africa. Uh, nothing, nothing justifies October the 7th, <clears throat> but it's not a question of justifying anything. It's a question of do we understand it? And how do we understand it? And how do we move forward to something different? And um, 
there's always this question of is is Israeli response to October the seventh proportionate or disproportionate? Well, another question is is October the seventh a proportionate response to eighty years of uh, oppression and and apartheid and killings and massacres? So you can't begin with October the seventh. Um, I don't believe that the killing. I, I firmly reject the idea that it's legitimate to kill. Um, unarmed people and children and, and, and old people and so on. At the same time, when you look at where that arise from, where that came from, which is, as other people have noted, has been called the world's largest concentration camp. In 2005, people are blaming Hamas. And I'm not here to support Hamas. I don't like Hamas. I don't like what they stand for, what they do, what they do to their own people. <laughs> the fact you even have but, to say that, Dr. Matthias. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, but, we might but, get onto why you, you know, feel you have to say that, because clearly, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, be, be, because the conversation is tilted in such a way as to make it necessary to even say that, you know. But what I was going to say was that in 2005, there was a study done in Gaza, internationally, actually, looking at children in war zones, the most traumatized kids in the world were the kids living in Gaza. This is before Hamas took over. So it's, you know, so in other words, what we have here is generations of traumatized children growing up in this open air prison, looking ac across the fields where their families used to live and work. And when they do peaceful protests, they're picked off by Israeli snipers. You know, so why aren't we asking was October the 7th a proportionate response to Israeli policy? Why are we asking, is Israel's bombing of Gaza proportionate to October the 7th? I mean, it's a completely ahistorical, uh, and as Israeli historian Ilan Pape talks about dehistoricization of, of the situation. So in the Western media, um, every attempt is made to dehistoricize October the 7th, like it happened in a vacuum. It's not a justification to say that it did not happen in a vacuum. It happened after decades of collective, brutal trauma visited on the Palestinians. That's ongoing. Well, that's what, that, that's what Antonio Guterres said, of course, and Israel called on uh, the resignation of the UN Secretary General. And Ilan Pape, we, you, people can see our interview with him on the Rumble Channel after October the 7th. But you know about this region. You fought for Israel. You've uh, studied this area uh, all your life, arguably. What about, uh, there are only hundreds of thousands on the streets of uh, Britain and uh, so many tens of thousands and so in the United States uh, cities across the country and in North America. Uh, what about the powerful's uh, favorite standby of human nature? How do you expect them to use the events there to those that don't really understand the situation in Palestine to further the idea that this is somehow to do with human nature and that, um, that you can't really strengthen the belief that human nature has the potential to be good out of what we're watching on our uh, social media at the moment? In my book, The Myth of Normal, which you kindly mentioned, there's a chapter on this so-called human nature. And the argument is that human nature is by... Um, <clears throat> necessity, aggressive and individualistic and, and hostile and, and violent and so on. Total nonsense. You know, um, human nature is a range of potentials. 
And it's a question of what conditions give rise to what kind of potentials. My son, Daniel, who you haven't met, but my second son, or I should say my first son, my elder son, interviewed two young Israelis on Instagram a few days ago who are against the war, who are against what their society is doing. Well, if there's human nature, why aren't they supporting the war too? You know, I mean, if you look at the Buddha was a human being, Hitler was a human being, um, Jesus was a human being, um, Stalin was a human being, um, Joe Biden is a human being, and so are the people that oppose Joe Biden. So there is no human nature. What there is that's, that was there is are systems that promote one aspect of human potential or another. But people are capable of being infinitely cruel and infinitely kind. And the question is, what kind of conversations do we need to have? And what kind of conditions do we need to establish that will promote the benign unfolding of our potential as opposed to the violent and aggressive and cruel ones? Aside from the, the political structures, obviously, here and the systems then, how do you think fear perpetuates these massacres of, of babies and, and children, fear of Biden's warships. You mentioned Biden uh, being a human. <clears throat> uh, fear of uh, politicians. Well, look, well, look. Fear of politicians, well, fear of speaking out, fears of, uh, uh, you know, at the Anti-Defamation League, I understand, called Jewish groups uh, who support peace, uh, hate groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jews like me are always told that we're full of self-hatred and you know, all this nonsense, you know, <laughs> that you can only laugh at if it wasn't so tragic. But um, so Noam Chomsky said that there's nothing more easy than to make the American people afraid. And fear is a powerful form of political control. Because when people are afraid, the rational um, parts of the mind goes offline and they go into defensive mode. In defensive mode, they're willing to put up with any kind of aggression. Now look, to be fair, after October the 7th, uh, there's every reason why many Israelis will go into fear mode. I mean, something terrible happened and they lost people and, you know. Now, they're also doing so in a vacuum, but they don't understand the Palestinian situation at all. They're not taught it. They're taught to ignore it. Uh, but nevertheless, a lot of fear. Now, somebody like Netanyahu, who has practiced these same policies all his life, he doesn't need fear to do all this. He oppresses the Palestinians. He has them tortured. He has their villages taken over by settlers. He bombs Gaza repeatedly, killing hundreds of people. But he'll take that fear and he'll use it to justify the worst kind of atrocities. And that's what politicians do. So the Vietnam War was all based on this dominant theory that if you let the communists take over Vietnam, then they're gonna take over the whole world. So you make the American people afraid, and that allows you to manipulate them into, if not participating in, well, participating in, but also condoning the worst kind of atrocities. So fear is both a genuine human response to threat, but it's also a political tool to manipulate populations with. And fear, and some might say, is a part of modern life. I mean, clearly there's a fear in... Uh a highly unstable economy about uh, feeding your family. Uh, the idea in mass media and news is often uh, uh, try and create fear of your next door neighbor because make uh, the world seem more criminal than it is, some might, might say. So how do you, uh, 
how do you uh, go past this uh, fear? Uh, and somehow, uh, and clearly at the moment, the fear-mongering is done as Hamas are ISIS, regardless of whether the United States were involved with ISIS. They're trying to make Americans and Canadians feel that somehow Hamas are going to attack BC Place in Vancouver or something. Well, that's the conversation that's going around, is that, you know, Hamas wants to kill all the Jews in the world, and if you don't defeat them there, they're going to come after you. You know, realistically speaking, it's total nonsense. Hamas is a relatively small organization compared to, say, the Israeli state, living in an area five miles by 25 miles, highly controlled. They've always been that. So they could sting Israel, but they could never pose any dangerous, significant danger to it, let alone Jews in the rest of the world. That's the first point. The second point is, let's assume that Hamas is this Jew-hating organization, that that's all it is. Let's just assume that for a minute, for the sake of argument. Who are these people in Hamas? Those same traumatized children that I mentioned, according to the study in 2005, we're already the most traumatized population in the world. And when most Jews they see wear army uniforms with the Star of David and, the, and, and, and everything that's being done to them is done in the name of the Jewish state and the major Jewish organizations in the world, by and large, line up with what's happening to them and justify it and have for decades. Do we have to... Do we have to um, identify the hatred of a Hamas member for Jewishness with historic anti-Semitism in Europe? It's not the same. I'm not justifying it again. I'm just saying there's nothing more natural than under those conditions, traumatized people will hate their oppressors. And if the oppressors are saying, we're doing this as Jews in the name of the Jewish people, What do we expect? And so I wasn't the only one to respond to October the 7th in a very um, mixed way. On the one hand, I thought it was horrible. And at the same time, I thought, what did we expect? After all these decades, what did we expect? And I wasn't the only one. A lot of people who visited the place like I have and have been to the occupied territories uh, who, who know the situation firsthand, that hostility, we're the ones, when I say we, I mean Israel, I don't identify with the Israeli state, but it's the Israeli state backed by the colonial powers going back to the 1920s that have created a situation where there's going to be a lot of hatred. And what's really interesting is if you look at the major Zionist leaders, uh, Ben Gurion, Vladimir Jabotinsky, Ben-Gurion was the first Prime Minister of Israel. Vladimir Jabotinsky founded the revisionist Zionist wing of the Zionist movement, which became Herut, which be, led by Begin, and fundamentally by Shamir, and later by Shamir. Both Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky, as well as Moshe Dayan, even in the 1950s, said that we call what the Arabs are doing terrorism. But all they're doing is they're defending their land from us. Dr. Gabor Mate, thank you. All right, thank you.
And that's it for the show. And condolences from the whole team here at Going Underground to those bereaved by the ongoing violence here in the Middle East. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday. But until then, keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.